Hello, this is Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid and the Web Yeshiva with another installment of our Jewish Educators Book Club. And I'm meeting virtually, uh, I'm in Jerusalem, he's in New York, with uh, my friend and colleague, Rabbi Gidon Rothstein, whose new book, We're Missing the Point, What's Wrong with the Orthodox Jewish Community and How to Fix It, was recently published by the Orthodox Union Press. And I'm particularly glad to be speaking with him about the book because it originated as a series of short essays. I don't want to call them blog posts, lest someone think that there's anything frivolous about them, but a series of short essays uh, in two different series that were run on the Web Yeshiva website, uh, one being the Mission of Orthodoxy Project and the other the Religious Autonomy Project. Gidon, tell me a little bit about the themes and topics and issues that you dealt with uh, on the Web Yeshiva website, and then how that got transformed into into this book. So first, I want to make sure to thank you, Jeff, for taking the time this morning for us to be able to speak. Uh, afternoon by you. Also, I wanted to thank the Web Yeshiva because the truth is the essays, the blog posts were extremely productive for me in terms of allowing my thinking to develop and to grow, it gave me a chance to have an outlet and to feel like I was connecting with people. And I very much enjoyed it. The uh, office at the Web Yeshiva was extremely helpful in terms of putting things up and getting them out there for me. The Mission of Orthodoxy Project began with my thinking about whether there's not a focus to orthodoxy that we're all missing. Wasn't it possible, I thought to myself, that you can turn orthodoxy into a series of actions and you never know where it's all supposed to go. You never know what it's supposed to be about. So if I said to Orthodox Jews, what's the point of being Orthodox Jewish? They'd just say, maybe you have to be. So I was looking for some kind of small, pithy, narrow set of ideas that you could say, this is what it's all got to be about. That was the Mission Orthodoxy Project, and I did it for a while, and on the web, you might have a chance to explore it in great depth. And then on the Religious Autonomy Project, on the other hand, I wanted to wonder whether, and it's a question that people have been asking since uh, Kant's time, is always very famous, is it just about listening to Torah and mitzvot, or is there some part of it that's about us? And in learning, over the years, I found parts that were very much about us, and then I thought many Orthodox Jews were missing out on it. Many Orthodox Jews felt like, well, as long as I do this halacha and that halacha, I'm done with my Orthodoxy. And the Religious Autonomy Project was about trying to figure out where we're supposed to put ourselves into it, in our own individual ways. So that idea of, of the, the imperative to be autonomous, uh, you read the essays and you hear very much the echo of, uh, of things that we've all read and studied in Rabbi Soloveitchik. Um, I'm thinking particularly these days of, uh, of uh, themes that were visited and revisited by the late lamented Rabbi Yehuda Amital from Yeshivat Haaretzion. Uh, but these were let's say, lonely voices uh, in, the, in the larger Orthodox uh, world, this idea that one has to really learn to think for himself. How did it happen that that became, a, I don't want to say a minority uh, opinion, but not the predominant uh, mode of religious life in contemporary Orthodoxy? So... I'm not sure that it became that way, or if, sadly, it's always been that way. I am struck, I've always been struck since Professor Tversky, Lava Shalom, first mentioned it. The Nabi Yishayahu speaks about Orthodox practice in his time as having been a mitzvah anashim malumada, a rote practice of people. And the Rambam in his time decried the fact that people are 
performing the commandments. I can't pretend to be a psychologist, but I wonder whether people find something comforting in being told, do this and you're fine with God. The Ramam, the truth is, that's where Avodah came from. Farmers were living in a very uncertain world. They didn't know how nature worked. They just wanted to troll it around them. I think, sadly, many, many people seek the safety of certainty, and therefore they miss the other parts where somebody says, no, you have to develop your relationship with God in your way, because that's uncertain. They want to be told, no, do this and you're fine. So I think it's, I'm not sure if they were lonely voices in our time, or if it's always been lonely voices who say those things. Well, then, in, in which case, it's interesting, because uh, we live in a contemporary world where science is supreme, where we wouldn't, you know, resign ourselves to, you know, the kind of fake causalities that that farmer you mentioned or the the ancient man uh, fell into when he looked at forces of nature and became distracted or confused and thought that that those things themselves were God or gods and that, as you mentioned, the Rambam uh, describes as the origins of idolatrous notions. Now the, that kind of thinking wouldn't take uh, take root in 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 our realm of you know, it's uh, funny you say that it's funny you say that but, but 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 yet but yet but yet in the religious sphere we haven't necessarily weaned ourselves off well i was going to say that i don't i'm not convinced that the scientific sphere we haven't weaned ourselves off cuz i meet people all the time who declare a certainty based on science that science itself does not warrant right. i think many scientists and i think we live in a time when many many scientists Lay claim to certainties they have no right to, and I think it's part of the same thing. So you're right. We have now couched our seeking of certainty and security in scientific terms, but we're doing a lot of the same things. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, you mentioned a moment ago uh, also late and lamented uh, Rabbi Professor Isidore Tversky, uh, who, of course, had been your teacher uh, at, at Harvard. Um, and I, I thought of him a number of times while, while uh, reading essays in the book, uh, and his particular uh, focus on the realm of meta-halacha, the kind of sense of being able to read between the lines of the Shulchan Aruch, of intuiting what the halacha is really after, what in a different context he talked about as kind of halachic antennae, uh, that sense that someone who is truly engaged with Jewish with Jewish life and Jewish learning and Jewish ritual and Jewish practice, is going to develop a kind of uh, a set of antenna, a, a, a pair of glasses through which he's going to to see the world. And I think that part of what you're getting at in the book, this notion that that while halacha is of course the bedrock, while ritual observance is of course the, the given, it's not in and of itself going to be sufficient or automatically going to create that sense of of antennae that are that, that are necessary for leading a re- religiously committed yet religiously autonomous life and i'm i'm curious how you think that that struggle plays out and uh, and 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 how are we doing as a community i'm that's i'm pitching you a softball because the title of the book, of course, is We're Missing the Point. Right. So, it's interesting you mentioned Pritzky Alava Shalom. I remember years ago when the Rav Zechazak Levrago was still alive, the OU had a Thanksgiving event where Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Tversky 
and somebody else spoke about the rub. And one of the things that President Tversky, Allah Shalom, said about the rub was that he was one of the first in a long time, perhaps since the Rambam, who tried to derive his hashkafa, his Jewish outlook, out of halakha. Out of halakha. Halakha was not only the bedrock of his practice, it was also shaping of his worldview. So I think that those, that's exactly right, that the ideal and the goal is that something be there. So for some people it's Kabbalah, it's esoteric knowledge. For some people it's philosophy, some people it's halakha. But that for the Ibn Ezra, as it happens, it was biblical knowledge. But whatever it is, it's supposed to be coming in together into a picture not just a bunch of different trees. It could be a forest, not just a bunch of trees, or a picture, not just a bunch of points in a painting. And I think the answer is that we're not doing that well. I think that's why I call the book, like you said, We're Missing the Point. I think large groups of the Jewish community are not seeing that that's what they need to do. I personally think it's across the spectrum of orthodoxy. I've had several people read the book from different strands of Judaism, of orthodoxy, and they'll say, well, in my group we do it fine. Yeah. It's not my impression. It's not my, my impression is that many, many people are walking around. They know the practice. They know how many dishwashers they have to have. They know, you know, uh, what they have to do in those terms. But putting all together into a picture, I think, is much more difficult. And that's the, the thought process I was hoping to stimulate. Uh, well, actually, one of the examples that you give of the kind of um, decision making. Uh, and prioritizing and, 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 uh, setting our values straight, um, is within the realm of, uh, allocation of tzedakah. Both on the personal level, how much charity one gives, as well as, I guess, communal priorities. And one of the things that you, that you mentioned, I think this is on page 229 in the book, you mentioned that in a religion where God sits at the center, our charitable giving, our giving should centrally focus on supporting those people and advancing those causes and institutions that help us and others build a better relationship with God, that help us and others become more God-like. And then later you say, and, and charity that will further the spread of the awareness of God in the world. So that's, you know, that's a really good point, but as a as a practical matter, won't people of good people of good faith will disagree on how to do that? Not just people within different religious camps, but even within one camp, with even sometimes within one family. Uh, well, how do you do that? What what's going to advance that cause of creating God centeredness and being godlike? How, how 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 do you translate that into a practical? into a practical guideline away from, you know, so that it's more than, more than, um, you know, a, a, a nice, uh, a, a nice notion of what the purpose of charity is. So I don't want to pretend like I have the answers. And I'm perfectly happy with noticing that the questions that I'm going to raise are going to lead to a multiplicity of charitable endeavors, just like we have today. The question is whether those will come out of the right questions or will just be a bunch of people running around looking for what to do. And what I really question is, at this point, is whether many, many, many Jews don't give to causes in large amounts that they don't have any claim to do those kinds of things. They give because their friends give or because it's fun to give there or it's, or it's fashionable or whatever it is. I know many people who give to strands of orthodoxy with which they don't themselves identify. So 
are they claiming I'm living my life the wrong way and I really want to support that strand of orthodoxy? Or are they claiming, I don't know what they're claiming, or are they claiming, you know, whatever it is. But if you're thinking about your charitable dollars as a way of expressing who you are, then you should give your money where your life is being lived in ways that will support that, or you should change your life. Or, or no, or isn't it also possible that people will support other brands of Judaism, and that's a demonstration of how they view the values of their life, which is a, a, a kind of a, a notion of the unity of the Jewish people, um, uh, the, the common cause of, of all of all of Kalal Yisrael, both Jews to my right and Jews to my left, who I may disagree with, but yet I think that within their community they're doing good works that, that should be supported. So if that's the way people think about it, then I suppose that's true. Then I suppose then I would agree with you. I'm just not sure that that's what's going on in all these situations. It could be. It could be right. But I think that, for example, uh, you're living your life one way, and other people are living your life the way that you don't support. For example, let's suppose you think your kids should go to college. Let's say. Right? You think your kids should get a job. And you think people should have jobs. So if you were going to then support a lifestyle in which somebody, A, either doesn't believe in God, or B, doesn't think people should get jobs or go to college at all, so are you supporting it for what reason? So I wonder about that sometimes. I wonder about those kinds of things. So I think you're right. If you're supporting other causes and other movements because you think they're doing the right thing for them, then okay, then that's your choice. And I can't, you know, we can have a conversation, but it's all different kind of a conversation. But I'm not sure that's what charitable dollars are doing today uh, in the Jewish community. One of the, um, this term, godlike, uh, there are certain terms that you use um, throughout throughout the book. God awareness, God driven, godlike. Maybe explain a little bit what you, you know, what you mean by those terms, how you're using them in the book. Um, I think that the study of Torah, uh, written and oral and, and Talmud and all those things, gives a sense of a picture of a world in which God seeks certain things, as it were, and operates in certain ways. Right? We, uh, our uh, high holiday liturgy is filled with a repetition of the 13 attributes of God. So we tend to assume that we're supposed to try to, as much as possible, emulate those kinds of things. So, too, when we see God wants a world in which the Jewish people are living in the land of Israel, that's a central theme of the Bible. I don't know if it's central, but it's certainly a central theme. Jewish people should be living in the land of Israel. Uh, a world in which the world is aware of one single God who is unique and different. So I think in, within Torah, within the Torah broadly and narrowly, there are many central ideas about God that are presented, and people are supposed to be living lives in those terms. So, you know, there's this bumper sticker in America talking about what would the major figure of another world be into. Mm-hmm. But we live in a world where we're supposed to be thinking of those terms, right? There's a mitzvah in the Torah, the Damor Pidrachav, to try as much as we can to be similar to God in those ways. So I think that that means cultivating, a, you know, a character trait, cultivating our personality. Are we humble? Right? Certainly humility is supposed to be part of a God-lived life. I see many, many people, including myself, but many, many people who don't make the attempt at humility, don't even pay humility in the lip service of pretending to be humble. Mm-hmm. You know, do we, do we live, I was recently at a Simcha, and, I, and you go to Simchot, and you see people celebrating in these, first of all, in, in ostentatious ways, which is, you know, against the Gemara that I quote in the book, and not quote about snoots and the nature of modesty. I just think about shaping your life by, is this what Hashem would want, or is it not what Hashem would want? I mean, years ago, I was in Flatbush, where I grew up, and I, the first time I ever saw somebody tear down two houses, 
to build another house, right? In Flatbush. And I remember I was walking along, I was 18 or 19 years old, and I was walking with a friend, and I a said, A couple of years ago. Right, and, just, just and I, a said, I said, that person doesn't believe in Mashiach. Because how are you, if you have that kind of money, how are you building a, so those kinds of questions. How do I shape my life in the ways that God and Torah and the Gemara and Rishonim and Achronim tell me are the ways that you're supposed to be trying to live? Asking those questions over and over again is what I mean by being God-aware, by being God-focused, and by trying to shape our lives in those kinds of ways, shaping our lives, who we are. If you react in anger to anything, almost every Jewish source tells you that you're not reacting the way you're supposed to be reacting. What do you do about that? So those kinds of questions, the kinds of questions I'm trying to hope to, to, to stimulate people into thinking about and to, and to considering. Uh-huh. So the, these notions, the, the book ends with three chapters focused, one on the home, one on the school, and one on the synagogue. So although the, although generally you're not making prescriptive, uh, uh, direct, giving directives, but in reality those are the three arena in which these issues play themselves out. Um, there's, of course, uh, a, um, a catch here or, or a, a bit of irony that particularly when we're talking about autonomy, well, how does autonomy itself play itself out within these larger communal institutions? Uh, um, and that's, a, I guess, a point of tension uh, that exists and perhaps has always existed in, in, in human life and religious life. But practically speaking, what can the home, the shul, and the school do in order to advance, if it were to adopt uh, and and to find your ideas uh, welcoming, to to be open to the, the ideas, the notions that you're putting forward. So first, I want to make sure that I point out that when I speak about autonomy, it's certainly a bounded autonomy. Absolutely. And the, and the bounds of the autonomy are that it's supposed to be shaped by Jewish knowledge and Jewish understanding. So I think that what we should be striving for is building and shuls and homes in which that's what's going on, which every decision, as many as possible, are being shaped in those ways. So I know many, many shuls. You know, I attend a particular shul, but I know many, many shuls where you walked into that shul, there's no way you could really claim that that driving force behind that shul is trying to find its way to a community lived in connection to HaKadosh Baruch Right? So that's a problem. So that shul needs to find ways to do it. Now, in many of those shuls, if they just listen to the rabbi, that would be a great thing. But that gets to the autonomy problem. So the question is shaping a davening and a list of shul activities and a list of shul events and a list of shul spending that would be about building a community in search of a relationship with the Kaddish Baruch in many different ways. You know, my community is excellent, for example, about Bikr Cholim and Nichum Those are wonderful things. And there are many people for whom the acts of visiting the sick and of comforting the bereaved are important chesed events, important kindness events that are about their relation with God. It's a wonderful thing. The question is, how do you build a community in which that's the shape of the community as a whole, in which members of the community realize, first of all, they have to make choices, and that they have to learn more in order to be able to make proper, good, valuable choices. So those kinds of questions are all over the place. In terms of schools, I feel like across the spectrum, Schools adopt uh, plans for teaching their students that aren't truly student-focused. They come up with some picture, whatever that picture is, and that's the picture they're trying to get across. The question is, how do you build so – and, for example, once I got out of high school and I went to a base medrash, it was much different. Because after morning shear, 
there was a lot more room now. Most yeshivos are very Talmud-focused, and maybe you'll say that doesn't work for everybody. But certainly, you know, I know when I was Yeshiva Haritzion many, many years ago in the Gush, they are the best guys, many of the best guys, on their own time, you know, in the afternoon or late night, were learning stuff that wasn't on the regular curriculum, right. and they were doing very well at it. So that, those are the kinds of issues that you can figure out. You want to develop a school in which every student is walking in. There are certain basic things they have to get, how much is necessary and basic and must be there, and what are the rest of the things that we can do to come out with students and congregants and family members where each family member says, this is who I am. I remember years ago when we moved back to Brooklyn, I lived part of my life away from Brooklyn. My father had gone to Chaim Berlin. We moved back and we met a fellow, whoever he was, who was the older brother of a well-known Talmud Chacham. And in conversations with my father, it became clear that this older brother spent his whole life a good guy, gave stuck up, whatever it was, feeling like a failure. Uh-huh. Right? Because he wasn't this renowned Talmud Chacham. He wasn't Chacham. his brother. Yeah. He wasn't his brother. So how do you build families and schools and shuls in which everybody's asking the same questions and really comfortable getting their own particular answers, all of which together will create the picture of, of a Judaism that we want. You know, the Rabbi on on Birke Avot talks about the fact that God doesn't tell us the reward for mitzvah. So he says, why not? He says, well, it's like a king who wants a garden planted. If the king told the gardeners which flowers were more expensive, well, what would he get? You get a garden full of only those flowers, but the king doesn't want that. He wants a garden with all sorts of flowers in it. So he doesn't sell them anything, and they plant the flowers. That's what I, 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 we need to do as families, as schools, and as shuls. We need to plant all the flowers and have a beautiful, blooming garden. Right. On, on that regard, I, I thought of a different essay that you wrote a number of years ago in a book, uh, not coincidentally edited by myself, ah. uh, a volume called Wisdom from All My Teachers in which you made certain critique on the, the conventional Yeshiva Day School curriculum, and you made actually some very practical proposals for its, uh, for its reform. And I think that there are connections between what you write about schooling here and what you wrote there, and I just uh, mentioned that to the, uh, to the interested listener to, to cross-reference. And the second edition, maybe we should add a footnote uh, in, in uh, we're missing the point to that other to that other essay uh, because uh, uh, you know whether one agrees with it or disagrees with it I think you can see the more um, practical pedagogical planning uh, uh, by Gideon Rothstein uh, that underlies both of these both of these works. I agree. I'm just trying to figure out if I didn't I didn't reference it myself. That would be sad. Uh, I should have. Absolutely. I just did if you did. Maybe it's in a footnote someplace. Right. It's certainly true that my thinking on pedagogy started with that with that essay and, and that and has only uh continued on that path from there, I agree. Right. Um but in terms of the school, of course, that question of uh you know, as Chazal kind of had this notion of uh that the what's the point of education? Is the point of education to produce that one great Talmud Chacham at the cost of having to run 999 other students through the mill in order to sift out and produce that one leader? Or are we concerned more with the, well, what's the language in uh, American popular politics today? The 99% of the 1%. So it's uh, funny that you say that because I'm not sure that Chazal meant that comment. Let's assume so that they... Let's assume, according to conventional understanding, that that's that that's no, what no, they, no. no, what I was going to say was, I'm not sure they meant you have to run the thousand through the mill. 
I think what they meant was you start out teaching everyone the stuff that everyone can get. Mm-hmm. And out of those, some will excel so much, you'll put them on to the next thing. And the ones who don't excel so much at it, you won't push them on to the next thing. So I don't think you have to start with thinking about it as a mill, and we're going to try to do everybody and see who comes out. I think it's you start with the basic stuff. Those who master the basic stuff so well, they can go on to the next thing. You put them on to the next thing. The ones who haven't mastered it yet, you don't get frustrated with them. You just continue until they've mastered the basic thing. Okay, so synagogue, school, and now finally home. What are some of the – I mean, the, the book is, you know, it's, it's far from being a parenting guide. But what would be some of the practical implications of your ideas? My children will tell you there's a good reason for that. <laughs> what would be some of the practical outcomes in the home? So I think it's a question of the same thing. It's a question of to the extent possible, how much do children and parents in the home experience their lives and their decisions in terms of being in relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu? Right? What are the... What are the questions that we're asking ourselves about what to do as a family? Where are we as a family spending our money, and what does that mean? So, you know, there are lots of examples, but let's say uh, for a family living in exile outside of Eretz Israel, how often and why and when do you go to Israel, and what is the role of the land of Israel? I don't want to get Zionistic about the state of Israel. I certainly think that, but certainly the land of Israel, that's not a Zionist question. What role does that play in your life? What role does... Talmud Torah play in the family's life? What role does a connection to a, to a Jewish community or a rabbi or a Torah figure play in a family life? When there are points of at issue, what are the Torah values that come into the question among those points at issue? I think those are all kinds of things that come up all the time in families. And we have a free day, what are we going to do with it? What time do we wake up and when you have teenagers, you know, teenagers going to Minion is certainly a huge issue. How does that play in and play out? How do you balance that against letting children grow up as as much as they need to in their own ways. So those are all kinds of things. To what extent are, is the family building an environment in which caring about Torah and Torah ideas and a relationship with God coming into play over and over again and shaping what they do? Uh, okay. How's the response been? Is everyone getting on board? Um, you know, people are getting on board. I, 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 I worry, I guess, a little bit worry that maybe the book has been too general. But the reason I left it general was because the extent that we get to a point where somebody can say, oh, that's just your opinion, and I'm lost because I'm trying to point out there are lots of things that are not my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, so far, so good. You know, I've gotten uh, – I've had a webinar with the OU, which was great. Uh, it's possible I'm getting some book reviews. I had, a, I had a book review come in from a place I'd never heard of, Internet Book Watch, some magazine in the Midwest. They mm-hmm. just came across the book. They reviewed it. So, exciting. Okay. Maybe Spielberg will license the movie rights. Yes, that's going to happen. Tomorrow. The question will be, who's going to play you? That's always the question in my yeah. mind. I play well, myself every day. <laughs> We're missing the point. What's wrong with the Orthodox Jewish community and how to fix it by Rabbi Dr. Gideon Rothstein, author of a number of other books, including works of Jewish literary fiction. Uh, uh, commentary on the Haftarot, all of these, uh, one quick Google search will uh, bring the, uh, the fortunate listener to, to find more of his, uh, his writings and thinkings and uh, etc. And of course, uh, you're, you're all invited to visit the Web Yeshiva blog uh, where you can find archives of, of Rabbi Rothstein's uh, essays, including... And continuing, including those that made up the book, but don't do that as a substitute for buying the book, available in fine Jewish bookstores everywhere, as well as, of course, online. Thank you, Rabbi Rothstein. And Thank we hope you, Rabbi Sachs. 
We hope to be back with you listeners uh, in the near future with a number of other uh, episodes of the Hatid Jewish Educators Book Club.